0: Chapter nineteen, Matthew, the nineteenth chapter. Matthew nineteen, as we continue on in this uh, passage of Scripture here in our study of Matthew, our Message this morning is entitled Hindrances to Salvation. Hindrances to Salvation. Probably the biggest hindrance or barrier to a person trusting Christ as their personal Savior sits comfortably between a person's two ears. You know, few people perceiving the reality of life beyond the grave think nothing of eternity. It never even crosses their minds. It's a subject regularly laid at our doorsteps by the daily obituaries, though, that confront the human obsession with life. And though we don't want to admit it, each breath we draw draws us nearer to eternity in facing our Creator and the Sovereign of the world. And that double-fist-sized gray matter between our ears, called the brain, works overtime to soothe the conscience and to avoid squaring with the teaching of Scripture regarding eternity. And yet every day the heart beats toward this destiny. Now such was the case with one person who shows up in three of of the Gospels. We know him as the rich young ruler. Three gospel writers testify that this man was rich. Luke tells us that he was a ruler, which likely means that he was a leader in the synagogue. Mark tells us of his reverence as he knelt before Jesus. But all three give impression of his genuineness and seriousness concerning eternal life. But he faced barriers to the kingdom that he did not realize. And the same is true with many religious people today. Some stumble over their religious practices and never make it into the kingdom. Others stumble over their diligence in following the commandments. Still others cannot get over the barrier of their inability to deliver the soul from spiritual darkness. Some have so many things in life that they take this as God's favor upon them. And then they realize, or they fail to recognize, their spiritual barrenness. So absorbed are they in the concepts of eternity and spirituality that they stumble over the plain teaching of the gospel. And the story of the rich young ruler certainly proves to be contemporary to the world in which we live in today. What is the basic message in this personal encounter between the young man and Jesus Christ. Well, it does show the futility of trusting one's own righteousness or ability for salvation. And it also reminds us of how strong the lure of things or stuff, as we read in 1 Kings, or no, it was in Genesis 45. I'm getting some, My message is mixed up there. Genesis chapter 45, when Pharaoh told Jacob not to regard his stuff. Uh, Word stuff, that's a good Bible word. But we get so caught up with our stuff and our things. But primarily, the story here is a message of grace, as we'll see. Eternal life comes through God or the grace of God only. And I trust that's what you believe this morning as well, and you understand. Or perhaps grace is just a nice religious term that you feel comfortable with, but you really don't know about it in practice. And so we want to consider the story as we ask the Holy Spirit to search our minds and hearts concerning the certainty of eternal life. And so follow along as I read our text this morning in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Where it says and behold one came unto him and said good master what good thing shall i do that i may have eternal life and he said unto him why callest thou me good there is none good but one that is god but if thou wilt enter into life keep the commandments and he saith unto him which jesus said thou shalt do no murder Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus saith unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Notice first of all this morning as we look at this passage, we're going to talk about man's delusions. Man's delusions. Now this was no fly-by-night young man here in our story. He's an earnest man. He's desperately concerned about his eternal life. It's not that he had been outwardly guilty of some of the worst things that man can do because he's really a morally respectable person. He's a good example in his community. He had every appearance of being a man blessed by God. And yet he knew something to be wrong inwardly. But he just couldn't put his finger on the problem. He hoped that Jesus would shed some light needed to remove the doubts and the gnawing consciousness of something so wrong that his eternity was in question. And his anticipation seems to be for a quick, decisive act that would put him in a spiritually safe place. He was not ready to embrace something so radically different that, that Jesus, the kind of life that Jesus was calling for. So notice some of his delusions here. And some of the delusions that man has, was not. it's not only been this rich young ruler's problem, but many others as well, then and today. First of all, we see one's ability to achieve righteousness is a hindrance to salvation. One's ability to achieve righteousness. You see, the question the young man asked Christ is really quite telling. He says, good master, what... Good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. And he poses a simple solution. Surely there is some action to take or some deed to accomplish or maybe even some gift that would acquire eternal life. No doubt he was brought up in a legalistic setting. This man probably had the impression that if he would do this or this or that, then God would make an exchange for those things that he did for eternal life. And very simply, he thought that, but he just could not discover what that good thing was. What was it he needed to do? And many others find themselves in that same position. And so you have people sometimes even entering the ministry, giving large sums of money for good causes. Some volunteer for service in the church. Some uh, take vows of poverty, or they forswear different vices. All that with the expectation of having done that good thing that was necessary to obtain eternal life. Now the whole premise of that falls flat when we come to the Scripture because... The Bible tells us that sin has its certain consequences. An exchange does take place for sin resulting in death, but not so with eternal life. You know that verse in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 where it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the consequences of sinfulness is death. The wages of sin is death. But eternal life is a gift. One is justly earned, the other is freely given. And yet this man thought that eternal life was something that he could obtain by performing particularly good deeds. Now what is eternal life that so compelled him to Christ? Well, by life it impl- implies a continued existence. A very real existence rather than some kind of transient ghost-like floating in the afterlife or absorption into the, into the soul of the universe. People have all kinds of ideas about what eterni- uh, eternity is. But the word eternal serves more to describe the quality than the quantity, though that too is figured into the term. If life means active response to one's environment, then everlasting life must mean never-ending active response to the best environment of all, namely that of heaven. Jesus tells us in John 17 and verse 3, and this is life eternal that they may might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So it is the end, never-ending, active relationship with a living God. Eternal life means eternal fellowship with God. It's forever being in the presence of our Creator and the, and the one who has, is the ruler of and to know His eternal favor, to understand the riches of His grace, to see the beauty and the glory of the Redeemer that we just sang about. Now, quite frankly, when we speak of being in the presence of one so holy and pure that the exalted seraphim before His throne cover their faces and feet because of the utter holiness of God, as it tells us in Isaiah chapter 6, then how can anyone think that he can obtain Eternal life. How can you, as a sinful person, do something that could push you over the edge so that you would have enough righteousness, enough holiness to dwell forever before the throne of God? How can one whose nature is bent in rebellion against God and whose every day drips with the evidence of sin? in both acts against God's law and neglect in doing God's will, do something to remove such enmity with God. Who do we think we are? That we could do something that would please God and He would give us eternal life. This is a delusion. The delusion common to humanity And that is, I have enough ability to achieve adequate righteousness to secure eternal life. I think think that in me, in whom no good dwells, there is a sufficient ability to do good enough to merit God's eternal favor. That is a delusion. And there are many, many people, many of your family members, your neighbors, who think this way they can do something to get them eternal life. That's a delusion. Secondly, the second delusion is one's understanding of God's standards. Now Jesus questions the young man's understanding of what is truly good. And then he tells him, but if thou will enter into life, keep the commandments. There it is. Just keep the commandments and everything's going to be okay. Okay. Now, as the commandments express the divine will, the eternal moral standards for holiness, all one needs to do is to hold them in obedience to have eternal life? Not quite that simple, is it? The young man finds this puzzling, and so he asks, well, which ones? You know, there are at least ten commandments, he figures, so... Which one of them holds the key to eternal life? And so Jesus gave him really the second table of the law plus the second great commandment, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man here is really looking for the silver bullet, so to speak, for eternal life. Jesus skips over the commands in the first table of the law. Namely, you should have no other gods before the Lord. You shall not make yourself any graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You need to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And our Lord has discerned the spirit of this young man in which he had an elevated view of himself and a very low view of God. And the only way that he could truly keep the second table of the law was by diligence in the first table. He didn't realize that he had either or neither. So here's the second delusion that's quite evident. The young man had an improper view of God and his standards for holiness. Now, he was unwilling to acknowledge his own sin. He thought that the living God only needed to see some great act on his part or some obedience at one particular level. And then God would accept him and it's not denied that or it's not that he denied the greatness of God but he thought he again would have enough ability enough personal righteousness to stand up to a divine measurement for righteousness and he looked at eternal life as though it was kind of a business deal a religious one yes but a business deal he thought he could just uh, uh, perform some appropriate Deed and God's righteous requirements uh, for him as a sinner would be met, and eternal life would be his. He was not unlike many in our world today who fail to see the infinite holiness of God, who imagine God as a celestial being that is a couple rungs higher on the ladder than themselves. These dare to parade through life as though they only needed to tip their hats to God along the way. And everything's going to be okay. And they fail to see the Lord as the one before them who, as Isaiah chapter 40 tells us, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as small dust of the balance, so that all nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. This young man thought, well, I've got enough righteousness. If I just do that one thing, well, God's going to give it to me. Because you know, his standards aren't that really that high. We fail to see the infinite holiness of God. And then thirdly. The third delusion is this young man's response to Christ, one's perception of his own righteousness. Jesus identified the second table of the law along with the second great commandment as necessary to keep in order to have eternal life. All these things have I kept from my youth. What lack I yet? And his response tells us more about him than we dared to know. The phrase, have I kept, is a word that was used of keeping watch over sheep. Keeping someone under guard. And the implication here is that just as a shepherd diligently watches over his sheep, or a guard diligently watches over his prisoner, so I must must be this diligent in keeping all these things. I cannot find any break of these commandments in my life. And I hope we hear what this young man is saying in his response. He knew nothing of the spirit of law, the intention that Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount that must own the mind and heart as well as the outward actions. God gave the law as a divine standard, not just outward conformity, not just doing things on the outside. Righteousness is not just keeping some rules. It's a completely different disposition of heart and life, a change in our attitude so that the character of God is reflected in every aspect of our life and our thinking. He says, all these things have I kept, and it betrayed his self-righteous heart and how far away from God he really was. And he asks, very curiously he asks, What lack I yet? What lack I yet? It's the same word used in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, it says there, For all have come short, or all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, What lack I? It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son, Who was in want. He could not figure out what he lacked. He could not figure out how he had fallen short. He could not figure out how he was still in want of something. What he lacked was a failure to come to grips with his own sinfulness. He could not see how desperately dark he appeared before the light of God's holiness. But Jesus would show him by pinpointing the very root of his idolatry and selfishness before God. I wonder this morning, could there be someone in our congregation this morning, and those listening to this message, that is living with these delusions in mind? Maybe you've considered your life, and you've compared your life to many people in the world, and you say, you know, I'm pretty good. I stack up pretty well. You know, there's a lot, people, a lot of people in this world are a lot worse than me. There's a lot of evil going on, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And yet you know there's something missing in your relationship with God. You have no assurance of eternal life, but do you know why? What am I still lacking, you ask, and so we need to consider... Secondly, this morning, Christ's instructions. Christ's instructions. The fact that this young man came to Christ with these questions is, I think it's admirable. But why did he do it? He calls Jesus a good master or a teacher. But he was really no more than that to him. And so Jesus is probing the young man by asking him, Why callest thou me good? Or why are you asking me about what is good? What brought him to Christ? And he certainly saw something special in the insights of the Lord Jesus. Maybe he had caught wind how Christ had upstaged the Pharisees and how he had performed miracles. But the reality that he dared to consider himself capable of doing good things before the one who was infinitely good helps us to understand his delusion. And we would think a person very arrogant and a fool who would walk up to a guy like LeBron James, for instance. You all know who he is? He's a basketball player. I would say Michael Jordan, but he's history. You know? A person so arrogant and foolish to walk up to him and say, you know, I play pretty good basketball. I don't do such a bad job myself. Or how about a person who will walk up to a guy like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates and say, you know, I'm pretty good uh, in making money. How dare anyone who knows he's a sinner Claim the ability to do good things before the only one that is good, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus instructs this young man in three areas. Number one, he needs to see God as he is. Very simple. This young man had a deluded view of God. It was evident by his thinking that he was able to do something good enough to measure up to God's divine standards for righteousness. And if nations are but a speck of dust on the scales and less than nothing before God, then how could this man think that he could perform good enough things to secure God's favor? Jesus said there is none good but one. The implication, of course, is that God is good and only the only one capable of doing good, but this young man had reduced God to some kind of mechanical formula. He thought if you know, God would just accept his best efforts, that would be enough. And he's not alone. The frivolous way that multitudes of people joke about God and toss his holy name around as though it was a cheap exclamation, uh, exclamation for making a point tells us that this young man is not alone. You know how people refer to God, you know, the man upstairs. How disrespectful. There's a popular thing that's being said today and even used in texting and messaging. It's called OMG. Oh my God. That's disrespectful to God. I know we may have habits of saying things like that, and yet we need to stop and think about what we are saying. We're making a cheap exclamation on a point, and we're using God's name. The holy God of heaven. The only one that's good. And this young man had to perceive the righteous character of God. Had he done that, he would not have dared to claim any ability to appease divine wrath through some good action. Yet he gave no consideration to his enmity with God. He was content to purchase eternal life, to secure his destiny, to do some good thing, to pay some money perhaps. Jesus told him, keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? I've kept them all. He needed to see God as he is. Secondly, he needed to see himself as he is. You need to see yourself as you are. At the heart of his failure to see God was his failure to see himself as he really was. Jesus gave him a list of commandments, and he quickly said, Oh, I've done all that, but what do I lack? I mean, is that all? He seemed to ask, Well, I've done all those things, so what's missing? Can you tell me, Jesus? And yes, Jesus did. He said, If thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The word perfect there implies completeness. Or a completely righteous man, a man who is truly in covenant with God, but he did not want to be complete. All that he wanted to do was escape the wrath of God. Jesus was letting him know that only by such completion would he be in God's presence. Jesus had intentionally left off one commandment out of his reciting of the second table. He said, that commandment, thou shalt not covet. And so he calls him to go away and sell his possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then follow after Christ. And after, like the Apostle Paul, as he described his own struggle with thinking himself to be righteous when he really wasn't, it was thou shalt not covet that did him in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. And yet, unfortunately, the young man loved his possessions more than Christ. Rather than seeing his own covetous heart and repenting, this young man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The root of his life revealed a covetous heart. Paul tells us that covetousness or greed amounts to idolatry in, Col- in Colossians 3.5. Though religious and respected, a man of high moral qualities, outwardly, inwardly he served his own greed. And he set it up as an idol before which he worshipped and sacrificed his affections. And that was the whole point in Christ's seemingly severe command. To uproot the idolatry of his heart and so he could then enter into the kingdom of, uh, of eternal life. You see, salvation is for those who hate their sin. And this young man loved his greed more than than Christ. He desired things more than he desired forgiveness. You know, sometimes we just don't like to think about our own sinfulness, do we? Or we'll talk about someone else's sinfulness, but we won't think about our own. Yet, apart from seeing ourselves as having nothing to do, deal with God's wrath, no righteousness to commend us. We often content ourselves with avoiding the cross of Christ. We need to see God as He is, we need to see yourself as you are, and then we need to see salvation as complete devotion. Jesus says here, come and follow me. Jesus told the young man, Christ would be His treasure. But he could not serve two masters, so Jesus told him to discharge his other master. He said, sell all that you have and come and follow me. He called for repentance and complete devotion to Christ alone. What other master have you been following? Jesus will not share his throne. He says, come and follow me. And that calls for intentional following of Christ as a disciple. And the test for this young man centered on his supreme love for his possessions. Now that test is going to be different for different people. But the point Jesus is making is that nothing must take place of a complete intentional devotion to Jesus Christ. What is a Christian anyway? What's the word mean? Christ follower. Christ follower. You cannot follow Christ by being devoted to another master. And yes there is a turning from your sin which stands in the way but sanctification and becoming what God wants you to be is a process that takes a lifetime and we are not going to be totally perfect until we get to heaven but as you take Christ's Invitation to come and follow me, you'll be saved, and as you're obedient to his commands, that devotion will continually grow. And that leads us, thirdly, then to God's grace. There is something rather unsettling about this story. The young man seemed to show great interest in acquiring eternal life, but he finds the road too narrow for all of his baggage. And so he abandons eternal life for the temporal devotion to his possessions. It says, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This was not what the disciples expected, because in the Jewish mind, a man that owned much property and had good standing in the community had to be in God's favor, or so they thought. But on the contrary, unless one is turn from the idols of his heart, and cast himself in dependence upon Jesus Christ crucified, he will not know eternal life. Notice with me a couple of things here. First of all, human impossibility. Jesus seeks to uproot the misconceptions of his disciples who equated possessions with divine blessing and favor. And in their thinking, if anyone had an advantage in getting into the kingdom, it would have been a rich person who obviously was under God's blessing. Verily I say unto you that a rich man should, shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now stating it first in principle, what a rich man would have a hard time entering the kingdom of, uh, is due to his settled affections on his wealth. And then he follows it with a comparison. How easy is it for a camel, the largest animal in that region of the world? And by the way, it's the animal that was usually used to bear all the stuff when they moved from place to place. It was uh, an animal that was used to carry a load. I think that's why he uses the camel. It's easier for a camel to to, uh, go through the eye of a needle Say, that's impossible. It's exactly what Christ was trying to get across. The young man came to Christ with the mentality that he was capable of doing something. But Jesus wanted him to understand that the absolute impossibility of what he was seeking to do. And in spite of this and many other biblical examples, people still have in mind that they can do something to make themselves savable. And so the disciples say gasp here and they say, Well, they're amazed. They say, who then can be saved? And they were drawing their conclusion to Christ's argument. This man did not qualify, then who would? No one. No one qualifies to be saved. You understand that? Not one of us is qualified to be saved. Not one of us deserves to be saved. So we see here a thread of grace pulled through the whole story. The young man relied upon his abilities. Christ put him in a corner to see the folly and the impossibility of achieving enough righteousness. Until we see this, we'll continue to rely on our own abilities, and we'll miss the grace of God that is necessary. So there's a human impossibility, but there's a divine ability. Jesus affirms precisely what the disciples understood. With men, this is impossible. And as long as we can think that we have a hand in our salvation by our own ability, then we'll never come to know the Lord. And many are so close. They believe in Christ. They believe He died on the cross. But they do not believe that what Christ did was enough. And so they have to add something. And they cling to their own ability before God. And Jesus Christ tells us that's impossible. Man is incapable of doing it. But with God, all things are possible. He alone is able to and capable to deliver us from, from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom. And he does it through accepting the death of Christ on our behalf. That's the grace of God. I wonder this morning are you trusting in the grace of God alone for your salvation? It's not you plus Christ that saves, it's Christ alone. I wonder is there an idol of the heart that continues to enslave you, keep you from Christ? Then throw it down. God can give the grace to do that. Turn from it and turn to Christ as your Lord and King. Let's pray. Father in heaven.